What are your writing dreams? Finishing that book, quitting the day job, becoming a best-selling author? Well, over four years, we've studied the advice of over 300 best-selling authors who've collectively sold over half a billion books. And we are excited to announce the Best Seller Academy. If you're ready to take your writing to the next level with accountability, craft, and coaching, your bestseller dreams are now only a click away. To find out more and apply, visit bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash academy. That's bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash academy. Let's run the show. Hello and welcome to the Bestseller Experiment, where we continue to discover what makes a bestseller and inspire you to start, finish and publish your book. I'm Mark DeVoe. And I am Mark Stern. A huge thank you, as always, to our Academates on the Bestseller Academy and our patrons over on Patreon. Without their continued support, we simply couldn't keep this show on the road. If you want to find out more about the Academy, get me and Mr. D as your personal coaches, uh, become part of a fantastic community, pop over to academy.bestsellerexperiment.com. There's a link in the show notes there. And if you want to support us on Patreon, find us on Patreon or go to bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash support. Mr. D, how are you today? I'm doing fantastically well. Thank you so much. Uh, I had, As I mentioned last week, I, I went off on a a little book tour this last weekend of some some bookstores that I've never been to before, some bookstores. Nice. And it was fantastic. And I know that on the podcast, it's a thing, it seems to be picking up momentum and we're going to be got talking about it after yep. the interview. People have been talking about their favourite podcasts and we've got so mm. many of them to do Bookshops. today. But bookshops, sorry. Yes, so <laughs> I just want to have a shout out to the two that I visited at the weekend, which are absolutely brilliant. If you're ever in Victoria, in British Columbia on Vancouver Island, there is, there's a... Um, one shop called Munro's that's been around for absolutely ever, right in the right in the centre of the city. Victoria, by the way, Mark, is very British. There are double-decker buses and English sweet shops. So I had a blast. I was there with my <laughs> blackcurrant and licorice sweets. I paid about six or seven dollars for a little little bag. But man, going around those bookshops, absolutely brilliant. And you know what I noticed? This so Munro's and also the other the other bookshop I'm going to shout out is Boland Books, which is absolutely beautiful and the two things i loved about these stores is almost all of the books were facing out ah which you don't see in bookshops much anymore because it's all about how you know packing them in but to mm. actually just stand in front of like a section and see all the covers it just completely changed the experience for me because yeah. looking at spines you know, you're scanning and just looking at names, but actually you're drawn to the cover. So I yeah. really appreciated that. And that, that was a, that was something fantastic. You don't see much anymore. Nice. How, how, was, your, how was your weekend? Well, speaking of covers... Speaking well, of covers, I've just got the uh, I just got the proof covers for uh, the Ghost of Ivy Barn, uh, which is the third, which is a Woodville book coming in July, pre-order now. And well, look, I know I'm biased. But it's a thing of beauty. It is a thing uh, of beauty. I'm looking, <laughs> I'm looking at it now, and I'm very curious, Mister Stay. Yeah, go on. As to what the glow is coming from the barn. <laughs> I'm very curious, but well, it's that brilliant. Would be- I love. I love. The, the, if any, will you put this up? Will you put this up on the uh, the show notes so people can? Have yeah, a yeah. I'll put. I'll put a link. So tell people can tell see everyone it. who's not aware of what a proof is. What is a proof? How does it work? And what happens as you, as an author, when you see a proof? Well, this is. Um, this is so the the proof. I, I've had the 
printed pages come through. So I had to check those. And that's literally me reading out loud, you know, from the first page to the last, making sure everything's uh, in the right order. That's, you know, so that's all been checked and ticked. And, and I've got print ready proof pages. Then you've got the proof cover, which is the cover, the spine and the back cover, which is sent to me uh before it goes to print so this arrived uh today in fact uh was it yesterday i don't know everything's a blur uh so i you know you you have to i you 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 have to read it out loud you have to read the whole thing you have to look at you know even website addresses and things like that and check the spine cuz you know i i've when i've worked at publishers they have done they have done things like leaving the author's name off the cover <laughs> um, <laughs> so yeah. exclusion yeah yeah yeah, wow. yeah so you you really have to really have to check it out so and i'm i'm absolutely delighted with it the artwork is by harry goldhawk uh, harry goldhawk rather sorry harry mm. um who's artwork is just astonishing um and the we've got a lovely quote from the talking scared podcast uh who call the series enid blight and film by hammer which i love, <laughs> love that that's uh, a great just, quote yeah yeah it really oh. something it really really does sum up and and the glow coming from the barn well it's it's like the ghost it's the it's a ghost you know so well, it's um yeah. i, guess I did when, in the title isn't it <laughs> when, when i when i when i briefed the art i you know they said give us some clues you know give us some pointers I said well there's this barn it's covered in ivy and i said you know what whenever i see it I see that it makes me think of the shed in ET, you know, when Elliot oh, throws yeah. the ball in the ball. I said, yes. can we go for that sort of vibe? So that's what Harry's that's done what there. It's, so that's great. So you yeah. do have a lot of influence on the covers because a lot of times people complain that the, the covers are just like generated and they're like, well, it's nothing to do with a book. It, you know, your mind is input. Right. Yeah, it's I, I'm very I'm blessed in that Simon and Schuster do let me at least stick my oar in a bit, and yeah. uh, the same with the blurb as well. They sent me the blurb and said, you know, can, what what do you think of the uh, the blurb and and the copy? And I'm very lucky in that I've got something called the Bestseller Experiment Group, who will um, uh, I'll put it on the group and they'll give me feedback and I listened and I made changes and they they're absolutely brilliant. So uh, can I can I can I read the blurb out, Mister? Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. Absolutely, <laughs> go for it. So. So we've got the shout line on the front. August 1940, the ghost, the witch, and the traitor. So we go to the back cover. Back cover says, in a quiet village in rural Kent, the enemy is at the gates. The Battle of Britain rages and Faye Bright encounters the ghost of a pilot who won't give up the fight. Before she can help him, Faye is whisked away to join a motley crew of witches to perform a top-secret ritual on the White Cliffs of Dover that could repel the invaders. But there's a catch. The ritual must be executed in the nutty. Mrs. Teach threatens mutiny. Miss Charlotte is intrigued, and Faye wants to call the whole thing off when she suspects there's a spy in their midst. It's up to Faye Bright to uncover the traitor while all dealing with the ghost of uh, the ghost haunting Ivy Barn, who may hold the key to the truth. But first, Faye has to learn to fly. Mm. So yeah, that may be the first blurb ever to use. The ritual must be executed in the nuddy. I in think that's a publishing nutty, first. Yeah, I yeah, think yeah. I think you should get a, <laughs> an award just for that. I haven't heard the word nuddy um, for a long time, and that's absolutely perfect, isn't it? it fits. With I was the, the I was book. sort of going in the nip or in the nuddy, in the nip, or in uh, there was in the all together, there was in the buff, you know, in the birthday in the, suit, in the birthday suit. I think yeah, nuddy, yeah. nuddy's just a brilliant word. It's <laughs> like is, there are certain words that just fit what they mean, right? It's my mission to bring strange English. Uh, 
uh, idiosyncrasies to the to the world, you know. So well, it's um, absolutely yeah. <laughs> mission accomplished. I love it. And then it, the thing I like about the back cover, it then says for fans of Lev Grossman, Alan Garner, and Terry Pratchett, which I think is brilliant because you don't often see that on books. You do more so. You, I think more and more I'm seeing it on Amazon now, and it's like you know in the blurb on the on the screen. But it's great to see it actually on a back cover. We've had those. It's insane just to think that any anyone is comparing me to Alan Garner or Terry Pratchett or Lev or, you know, it's just bonkers. But we've had it enough times to sort of stick it on there and feel justified, well, you know? And I think it's really yeah. important. I think it's really important to signpost people because, when, again, when someone's looking at this cover on Amazon when they, they picked it up in a bookshop, they have to make a decision. And it's you've mm. read the blurb and if and if – that that could be the clincher for them, you know. If they're a big mm. Terry Pratchett fan, that could be the clincher. It's like, oh, well, if it's Terry, fans of Terry Pratchett, that's me. And I think people tend to shy away too much from um, comparisons. I mean, because it's never direct comparisons, but it but it's signposting. That's what I call it. Yeah, so that's yeah. signposting, and it actually makes life easier for people. Like, why would you not want to make life easier for people to buy your book, folks? Right. Yeah. I mean, that's what this is about. So mm. um, I love it. I think it's really good. And you've got some lovely quotes there from Amanda Scott and Rowan Coleman. Rowan says, full of magic and delight that will thrill readers of any age. So it looks like a proper book, mate. Congratulations. It does, mate. Yeah. You're, kind of, you're kind of like almost there, aren't you, with all this publishing malarkey? <laughs> <laughs> Getting the hang of it. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Three books yeah. in. This is amazing because this is, I mean, no, it's it's absolutely phenomenal. I mean, if you want to see, I'm, I'm joking, obviously, if you want to see how it's done, go look at this proof. Um, because the, uh, in this proof is five years of podcasting knowledge yeah. is, yeah. is 25 years of publishing knowledge is working with Simon and Schuster is working with a great artist. It just brings it all together. And, uh, yeah, I'm absolutely chuffed for you, sir. And I hope this oh, is going to be you. the biggest, biggest and best one yet. Absolutely. I hope so. Brilliant. Absolutely I hope so. brilliant. Um, what I will mention is there's a discarded bike as well, and, and she hasn't locked it to the railing. I think that that could be totally 1940s, couldn't it? It's sign of the time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. There's it's no not- helmet, no bike helmet lying there, <laughs> no, which is no. like, brilliant. The, bi- the bike plays a very key part mm. in the plot this time, so I don't want to give anything away, but yeah. Can't wait yeah, to yeah, read yeah. it. Excellent yeah, stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Brilliant. <laughs> so let's dive in, Mark, to our incredible, talking about Nuddy, there's a bit of Nuddy in this interview, I do believe. Um, <laughs> yeah. Tell us about tell about tell us about our uh, interview this week, Eva Lee. Well, we're uh, delighted to speak to Eva Lee, whose real name is Zoe Archer. She also writes under that name. She's a USA Today best-selling romance author uh, who's always loved romance, and she writes that Regency romance, which. How many hundreds of episodes are we into this? We've never had a Regency author on before, which which blows me away. Um, she also writes as Alexis Stanton. Uh, she's she, she writes these wonderful novels, chock full of determined women and men who are here for it. And her new book is The Good Girl's Guide to Rakes. It's the first in a new series, The Last Chance Scoundrels. And we discuss writing for reader and genre expectations, delivering and subverting tropes, what it means to be published by Mills and Boone, and how exploring other channels of creativity helps her writing. Brilliant. So let's dive in and listen to the interview of Mark Chatton with the lovely Eva Lee. Eva Lee, welcome to the bestseller experiment. How are you today? I'm very good. How are you? Happy spring. Yes, the spring spring has definitely sprung. The the skies are blue here in the UK, which is quite unusual. Uh, so I'm enjoying. Phenomenal. That. <laughs> 
But we we are we are overjoyed to speak to you today because I think you are the first Regency romance author we've had on the podcast, uh, which blows my mind because um, it's such a such an incredibly popular genre, and we'll talk about that genre uh, and that period in, in a moment. But you have a new book, which is The Good Girl's Guide to Rakes, which is the yes. first in a new series, The Last Chance Scoundrels. Tell us about The Good Girl's Guide to Rakes. Well, The Good Girl's Guide to Rakes is um, a story where in three scoundrels, three rakes, if you will, um, are given an ultimatum by their families that if they don't shape up and get married to respectable, underscore respectable women within the span of a year, they lose their money. They lose their inheritance. So these are all younger sons. Um, and also the one of the characters is the son of a self-made man. So um uh, our hero of this particular book goes to his best friend's sister, which is an extremely popular trope. If you want to talk about tropes, we can talk about that. She's the most respectable woman he knows. And so he asks her to revamp his image, his public image, because no one is going to marry a scoundrel like himself. So he needs her to help him reform his image. And she says, all right, I'll do this. But um, if you do that, if I do this for you, you have to take me to London's scandalous side, which you know all about. And then hilarity, shenanigans, and a lot of sexiness ensue. <laughs> That's fantastic. We've got a few uh, uh, listener questions. One is from Christopher Wills, who says, what is it about rakes and scoundrels that attracts your readers to your books? I mean, these these are the bad boys of history, aren't they? What, yes. why, do, why do we keep coming back to these fellas? Well, I think one of the reasons is, and one of the appeals of historical romance is there are a lot of societal rules as to what constitutes appropriate behaviors, particularly among the upper echelons, as well as in the emerging middle class. Um, and so, uh, because they, they're almost more rigid in terms of how they patrol behavior than even the aristocrats are. Um, but as far as like, the, there's all these set rules that people need to follow and there's really nothing sexier than breaking those rules rather than somebody who was adhering to them. Um, I think it's a, that's a rebels are, um, characters that I think appeal a lot to the Western imagination. Um, I can't speak globally, but I know about that. So I think when you posit a character like that in this world who breaks the roles and especially because women's roles in this time were extremely constrained this person is going to facilitate them sort of leaving those roles behind and as for me personally i am a gen x person i imprinted on han solo and indiana jones and those are you know obviously both harrison ford but there are also scoundrels and rakes who have who are not rule followers, who have a devilish smile, and you know that they're fun and they don't take themselves seriously. So all of these things combined make this alchemy of like a very appealing hero. You mentioned earlier about tropes of the genre. Uh, this this is a genre that has high expectations from the readers. These are readers that expect to see certain things in their stories. Do you, how conscious are you of those kind of tropes and do you enjoy delivering them and sometimes subverting them? Do you like to play with them? Yes, all of the above. Um, tropes are, they're very interesting because when I was initially starting in writing romance, I was not leaning as hard into the tropes. And I think that made the books a little more hard to market because when you have, when you establish a trope, when you say this is a best friend's uh, sister book, then you have certain expectations that you're and hopes that you are going to see get met by the book. Um, so you've already established a relationship where the reader's id is like, oh, I like that. 
Um, and then what you do is you deliver that, but then it's also like, how can I create it in a fresh way? What's my take on it? How do I give the reader what they're looking for, but also make it a little bit different? So I kind of sort of try to straddle the line between delivering and also subverting. Do you ever get moments where you think, oh, I've gone too far? <laughs> You know, not necessarily. I um, I feel like there's a certain uh, idea of what a romance reader is. And I think we all have these sort of notions of grandmoms and, and you know, things like that, reading their Mills and Boone. And um, I think the, the way in which the book market has evolved and changed, younger readers are gravitating towards things, which are, as they call, um, I don't know if they say this in the UK, but in the States, they call them bananas. These things are really bananas. They're, you know, they're kind of out there. They're crazy. Um, and they also like higher heat sensuality in their books. Um, so um, I don't ever feel like I've gone too far and I like to make my books very hot. So I, I, I don't feel like I'm going in that direction. Um, and, you know, sometimes I get pushback from certain readers because they feel like my books are to use a uh, sort of a derogatory term now to woke. They don't like the political connotations that I do. And I'm working really hard to make my books political um, and also sort of subvert and challenge some of the expectations and beliefs about what constitutes historical accuracy. So I get people who are like, oh, I don't like this book. It's too woke. And I'm like, you know what? You know, if I offend you, then I've done my job properly. <laughs> I'd like to talk about that idea of heat because there are you. It wasn't until I started this podcast when I started hearing people talking about clean romance, that thing where everything goes on behind closed doors. And that's right. a reader expectation thing as well. I mean, you're very upfront about how steamy and hot your books are. Uh, it, when you first started out, what, did you make a conscious decision? Did you say, I'm going to keep away from that? I, I'd like to have them kind of steamy. Well, I think my own personal preference is to write on the steamier side. I like to read books that are steamier. And I personally um, don't like the term clean because that makes it seem like sex is dirty. So I have written under another name for Hallmark, which um, is like a very, I don't know if you're familiar with this in the UK, but Hallmark is a, you know, the, the network and the books and the line of greeting cards, which are very wholesome. Mm -hmm. And when I was writing for them, I called those books kisses only, you know what I mean? So I made sure that I didn't have that distinction between like that sex is dirty because it's not. My books are very sex positive. So I always gravitated toward very high heat books because I found that emotionally fulfilling since um, for me, sex is part of a healthy um, uh, fulfilling relationship. It's different for everybody, but that's what I like. So that's what I determined that I was going to include in my work. Wonderful. You mentioned Mills and Boone earlier, which is a national institution in the UK, an international institution now, started over 100 years ago. I think it's much misunderstood by people who don't read their books, but what does it mean to you as a romance author to be published by Mills and Boone? I mean, it's a phenomenal honor, you know what I mean? Because Mills and Boone is romance in the UK, you know what I mean? It's like when people, it's sort of like, the um, the byword or almost like synonymous when you think romance, you think Mills and Boone. So to be part of their roster of authors is pretty amazing. And what I really like about what Mills and Boone is doing is that they're um, they're working hard to embrace new technology and new yes. readers. So it's nice because they're not like, well, this is what 
you're going to pick up at like, I don't even know if they sell Mills and Boone at like Sainsbury or something like that. But you know what I mean? Like yeah, the sort they of used like, to be in little carousels, didn't they? Yeah, news yeah, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. It's moved, moved so that. it's, you would imagine like you see them on the doily next to your, you know, next to the, uh, uh, the you know, with the teapot and stuff like that. And that's the person who reads it, but it's like, um, and there's the category Mills and Boone, I think, where they kind of do like the, the billionaire's, um, secretary bride or something like that. There's like that kind of, and then there's other iterations of it. And that's definitely appealing towards a different demographic. Um, one who is more progressive, one who is more open to different expressions of sexuality. And, um, and I really like embracing that component of, it. and I like that Mills and Boone is doing that too. No, fantastic stuff. Let's talk about the Regency period again, because certainly in the UK, when we think of Regency, we think of Jane Austen, Georgette Heyer. Uh, it's a it's a period that people, I guess, think they know. It's a period of history that requires a lot of research. Again, a listener question from Christopher says, you obviously love and have researched the Regency period. What do you do for research? I mean, do you come to the UK often or is it book based or web based? Well, predominantly what I do in the initial stages, because I've been writing romance now for quite some time. And I also I started reading romance in the 80s. And that was pretty soon after I decided. And then soon after that, I decided, oh, I want to write these as well. Um, So at that point, there was really no Internet. So I did a lot of book research and things like that. Um, And then now with the advent of the Internet, I do a lot of research that way. Um, There comes a time when you have a certain storehouse of knowledge Mm -hmm. after you've been doing it for a while. So um, you don't necessarily have to um, look things up. But if there's a specific thing, particularly when it comes to legalities and stuff like that, I definitely need to do research. And then there's always other the community of historical romance authors who know this era backwards and forwards. So if you're like, hey, um, what would be the, you know, if when I'm talking about an entailed estate, et cetera, and et cetera, which is obviously a big plot point in Pride and Prejudice mm-hmm. that the Bennets are going to lose Netherfield to the next male relative is Mr. Collins. And that's why Mrs. Bennett's trying to marry off her daughters. Mm-hmm. Okay. So it's like, these are these are the kind of things you sort of need to know and you learn about, and then you supplement as, and they also shape plot, you know, cause sometimes the plot um, is influenced by what the external circumstances are. And that creates, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of fun when it comes to how can I circumvent that, which is usually what I try to do. <laughs> Wonderful stuff. You mentioned, um, the eighties earlier and one of your series union of the rakes, which just yes. I, all I can hear is Simon Le Bon now. I mean, <laughs> I am a huge, huge Duran Duran fan. Yeah, I yeah, have yeah, been yeah. since elementary school. So this was my tip of the hat. If 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 you guys are listening, which I strongly doubt you are, but if you are, just in case, not that they wouldn't listen to your podcast, but I think they're a little busy right now. But if they are, this is my shout out to you guys um, because their music videos were massively mm. influential to me because they were these little cinematic masterpieces and they were yeah. very evocative and they had a lot of romanticism in them and the music did as well. And it was excellent musicianship. And so all of that sort of and eighties music coincided with when I started reading romance. So to me, there's this kind of um, intertwining. Plus I, as um, I don't know, generationally how kids of my age were raised in, in the UK, in the United States, we were left alone a lot. So we spent a lot of time watching cable television. So I watched a lot of narrative cinema and that's where that, that influenced a lot of the plots because those are trope based plots Mm. in the union of the rakes series. So it was like it all kind of folded together and dovetailed to create this sort of synergistic 
um, salute both to the romances that I read as well as the music and the movies of the 80s. I just I just love the idea that you can take this historical fiction and pepper it with references from something that happens a hundred years later, you know, movies. Yeah, and, uh, I it's, mean, it's terrific. It's fun. It's, it was a lot of fun to write. <laughs> it's good. Also, those early Duran Duran videos directed by Russell McCarthy, who went yes. on to do Highlander uh, and many other great yes. films. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I remember, you know, his films and I used to watch MTV where they would show the making of the music Mm. video before they would premiere the video and stuff like that. So you got to see all of the forethought, you know, that went into, you know, the including like, you know, something like the the video for the Union of the Rakes or Wild Boys or something like that, where they were, which was deliberately a cinematic effort, Mm. which that was pretty amazing to me. Yeah, they were always a big event, always a big event. I've got a great question from Laura, Laura Regan who asks about your creativity. Uh, She says, uh, Eva's Instagram feed is always full of the most delicious-looking homemade cakes and baked goods. She always seems to have something delicious when she's sitting down to do edits or revisions. She mentions she uses this as a creative outlet, and she also paints and creative in other ways. Could you ask her how important it is to Eva to be creative in ways other than writing, and does she find that helps in her writing process? So... This other side of you, this other other channels of creativity, does that feed into your writing too? Or is it just something that you like to do because it's not writing? Um, I, I think it's sort of a, a little of both. I need to get away from my computer and there's only like refilling the creative well is something that a, a lot of that works well for me. I can't advocate like, this is what you should do because I don't believe in rules for writers. Um, but like for me, it really helps sort of get me away from this two dimensional thinking where I'm just sort of looking at my monitor. Um, it gets me physical, you know, what's really nice about baking in particular, or even art, but baking especially is that like, it is, you have a tangible product at the end of it, because there's such a divide between when you finish writing your book and then the actual time when you get to hold it in your hand. Mm. And on top of which you're not there to watch the reader read it, which is actually kind of a good thing, but like, um, so, you know, I can bake some cupcakes and then we can sit and eat them and they're delicious. And then we enjoy them. And then there's sort of like, I put this effort into it. And at the end I have this to show for it, but I definitely think creative outlets are, can be very beneficial for writers. I think, um, if we limit ourselves to one particular sort of creative expression, you can tend to kind of suck all the nutrients out of the soil. Um, so finding other ways, be it, you know, music or dance or whatever it is that, you know, um, you know, even writing fan fiction, I think is a creative outlet that doesn't necessarily have to go directly into the product that you're producing for sale and distribution, something that's for you, then um and it shows an alt an uh an enriched or alternate side of who you are i think those are things that can definitely help the creative process wonderful stuff where did it all start for you eva how did you get on this uh, i mean it's you're you know it's been an incredible career a uh, multiple you know bestsellers you write in write also as zoe archer and alexis stanton where where did it all start for you um, well, <laughs> let me tell you now I sound like an old tiny, um, American. Okay. So 
I started writing when I was a little child, but, um, and I was writing short stories and plays. And I, when I was 11 years old, I went to London and I saw the musical cats and I fell in love with it. So I wrote like a, a side, like a, a 60 page typed up epic based on the musical cats. <laughs> so I was doing all of that, um, pretty early, but in the high school, a friend of mine started giving me the romance novel. She was, her mother was lending her. And I just sort of fell in love with it. I, especially the historical romances. Those are the ones that really captured my imagination. And granted, this was at a time when a lot of romances had dubious consent. They had certain power dynamic elements that I found problematic. And so I don't know about your listeners or you, but sometimes one of the greatest motivators for writing is spite. And so I was like, I was like, I want to do this better. I want to make it well better to me. I want to make this something where the women have more agency. It always bothered me. So I started writing romance in high school and my, <laughs> so to give you an idea as to like what my sort of ethos was, my first attempt at a historical romance novel was uh, the heroine cap was the captain of a pirate ship. She captures the aristocratic hero's ship and she sells him into indentured servitude. So like that kind of gives you an idea as to like where I was coming from at that point. Fast forward to me going to graduate school, I was going to get a PhD in English literature. And then I, um, I sold a short story to a literary magazine and I actually wind up winning, winning a contest that they were having. And I started fielding calls from agents, but I didn't have a manuscript for them at that point. Um, I was just working on my master's thesis on, uh, 18th and 19th century British literature. Um, so I kind of reevaluated where I was going to go. And then I determined that I really wanted to write. So I went to, I left my graduate program with a master's. Um, and then I went and I got a, an MFA degree. I don't know if you have something similar to that in the UK, yeah. a master's of fine arts degree. Yeah. Uh, MA, MA degree. Yeah. Yeah. So I went to a, kind of prestigious MFA program where it was all about literary fiction. And I was reading that at the time and attempting to write it, but I was also secretly writing romance, which nobody knew. <laughs> and I drafted my first complete romance novel while I was still in graduate school. And that taught me that I wasn't a, a workshop, an MFA workshop short story author told me I was a novelist. Mm -hmm. I wrote full length fiction. And um, I graduated with my MFA degree and then I was doing, you know, some horrendous day jobs while I would get up early in the morning and write. That's how I got it done. Mm -hmm. um, and then at the time it was the early aughts. So like if you wanted to get in touch with an agent, you literally wrote them a letter mm. and you sent them a photocopy of your manuscript in the mail with a self-addressed stamped envelope. And then you just sat there stewing for months. <laughs> Yes, I remember those days. <laughs> yes. Yeah, we would go to, I'd go to the photocopy place all the time and make tons and tons of copies and things like that. Mm. And um, eventually I got an agent. It took a while to sell a manuscript. I sold a, a manuscript to Zoe Archer. Um, I sold, uh, and then there was kind of like, one of the things I think about the, the writing life is resiliency and the ability to get back up again, because I cannot tell you how many times I've had to restart or rethink or pivot. So I've been through three agents. I've been to numerous publishers. I've changed my pen name several times. Um, 
So that being nimble and being adaptable is definitely part of it. And when I, I was writing a Zoe Archer, I wrote all kinds of things, historical romance, sci-fi romance, steampunk romance back when they thought that was viable. I mean, I love steampunk, but it was a trend that we had a hard time selling. Yeah. Um, I've, read, I've written all kinds of things. And then I sold to my American publisher, HarperCollins, and their, their romance imprint, which is Avon. Mm. And when I sold to them, <clears throat> uh, they're like, hey, how about a new pen name? And I was like, all right, you know, cause it was, it was basically almost like a bait and switch for the buyers at the bookstores mm. so that they would think like I was a new author and they wouldn't see my relatively middling sales as Zoe Archer. I had a lot of fan readers who really liked my stuff, but I didn't sell great. So Avon was like, let's sort of repackage you. And that's uh, brought me to where I am today. And Mills and Boone published me soon after, I think, they have a relationship with HarperCollins. Yes. Um, and uh, here I am. Fantastic. Fantastic. You're right. The determination, persistence, perseverance. People think it's, you know, one novel and it's all days of wine and roses, but it, it's you've, you've really got to want this, haven't you? You do. And you need to be able, there's, it's, it's a really interesting sort of dance that you have to do because on one hand, the outcome of your work, where it goes, how it sells, all of that is very uncertain. You know what I mean? So the one thing you need to have, I feel like is that's an important relationship is that you, whatever it is that you're writing is that it's something you want to write, something you enjoy writing because that part of the process we can control. And then from that point on, you, you, it's not in your control. So if you're saying, well, I see that dystopian young adult fiction is really selling well. I'm going to write one, but it's not something that appeals to you. It's not going to turn out very well. Mm. You know what I mean? So um, you have to kind of, you both need to write like what you need and you, like what appeals to you and you can position it in the marketplace. So you're like, how can I find aspects of this story or this narrative that also fits into the zeitgeist? You know, so when I sold to HarperCollins, Regency Romance was, and as we were talking about earlier, it's a very popular sub subgenre within historical romance. Well, when I initially sold to them, my initial concept um, was going to be 18th century because that's my favorite historical era. But then I was like, well, they don't publish a lot of 18th century there's a couple of authors out in the world, not only just at my publisher. So what would I lose my core story if I made it a Regency set romance instead of Georgian? And ultimately it would still work. And that, so I made that little tweak and then I was able to, I think, you know, sell it in a, in a more effective way to a publisher. Right. Excellent. Very, very interesting. I noticed also that your husband, Nico, Nico Rosso, yes. he also writes romance. Now, I was curious, right. was he new to the genre or did you have to show him the ropes? Well, he um, had been a screenwriter. Um, uh, we're both from Los Angeles and he uh, he was a screenwriter. And then he the the filmmaking industry is a very challenging place to be. Tell me about it. And he <laughs> saw me writing romance and he was my beta reader. He would read my stuff and he always was very respectful and he had really good notes. And he was like, I really like this genre. I really like what it signifies. I like the community and it was so much more um 
in in certain ways, it was so much more supportive than the Hollywood community. Mm-hmm. So he um, he started writing it and um, wrote some sci-fi. He's written romantic suspense, um, you know, and he was even nominated for the Rito Award, which is the big award from the Romance Writers of America. So like he really enjoyed it. And like he would go to the national conferences, which is predominantly women. I don't know the percentage. And like, you know, sometimes there would be like a spouse tagging along with their, um, with their partner and the guys would be like, aren't you scared? And he's like, no, I'm, I'm very happy here. This is so much, I'm, I'm much less scared and intimidated and worried in this community than I ever was when I would walk into a production office. Mm-hmm. And yeah. do, so, do you, um, I was just going to say, so he's very integral to my, um, writing process. We, plot my books together. He, when I send my books to my editor, he reads them at the same time. And so when her notes come in, um, he knows we can talk about those notes and he has his suggestions and my editor has her suggestions and we, we work on them together. And, and so it's, it's definitely a, um, the Eva Lee is sort of like, uh, the umbrella term for a very, for a a system that involves more than one person. (laughs) Wonderful, wonderful stuff. Yeah. I'm long may it last. What's coming next from you? Well, the next book is called uh, How the Wallflower Was Won, which is the next book in the Last Chance Scoundrel series. So of the three of the three scoundrels, the titular scoundrels, two of them are brothers. So the second book is about one of those brothers. And um, and then the third book will be uh, coming, I think, next the following spring. So I think how the wallflower was one will be, I believe late, like sometime in September or October, not sure about the dates in the UK, but um, it's been uh, a blast writing these. I really enjoyed it. And I like writing marginal, like people who are on the fringe, not necessarily the Duke, but the Duke's younger brother or something Mm. like that. So this has been a fun experience for me. Well, this has been a fun experience for me. Thank you so much for speaking to us today, Eva, and I hope to speak to you again soon. Yes, thanks so much for having me. i got to say, I love the quote, Mark. If I'm not offending you, I'm not doing my job. <laughs> I don't often hear authors it. say that, do you, really? Because yeah. yeah. no, authors I... like to sit on the fence or be very safe with their writing to not offend people. I, I, I don't know if it's just about offence. You, you want to provoke people. You want to provoke, even if it's just an emotional reaction, even if it's just making them laugh, making them cry. You don't want it to... I think anyone who goes into a book thinking I need to please everyone is kind of on the wrong track. You can't please everyone. You've got to, you know, take a stand. You've got to – I mean, people go, oh, I don't like writing that's political – all writing is political. Everything you write, you are you are saying, this is me, this is who I am, and this is what I believe. And your beliefs and your convictions and the way you see the world will be perceived as either political or a belief system. So, you know, if if it's it's this is one of the scariest things about writing because you are putting yourself out there in a way that people can rank and rate you in a very horrible way if they if they so desire so i think it's um you you can't you can't hope to please everyone you can't hope to write something that's inoffensive because why what's the point well everyone's offended at something 
Oh, yeah. Right. It's, I mean, there are people that just spend their whole life being offended by the world. I mean, we're never going to please any of them. But it's also interesting as well, because no matter what you, you know, if you put it out there through one of your characters and you take maybe the opposite, we've had the authors talk about that. Oh, yeah, yeah. They take, they, they create that kind of the character that believes the exact opposite that you believe as yeah. an author. And you yeah. see, the problem is even with that, people are going to make the assumption oh that's that's the author's belief coming through the character and oh gosh there's, yeah there's I, no I, there's no way of avoiding it ultimately I so we, we've got an author coming on in a few weeks and as part of my research i'm looking at the books and i'm looking i'm looking on goodreads and this author's written a gritty crime novel and terrible things happen to terrible people it's a crime novel it's a thriller it's really you know gritty and someone on goodreads who clearly has no understanding of how fiction works has said oh the racism the sexism the violence you know this is a terrible terrible person it's like she's writing a gritty thriller what do you expect you know terrible things are going to happen to innocent people what what planet are you on so anyway i'm getting quite excited but there. it always but but yeah it, you're right though it actually reflects and and this is a really good way if you're an author and you read one of these reviews and, and it gets you down and you think oh no i've lost a reader or they're going to go and tell the world that, that my book sucks the most important thing to remember is the review and what they write is a ref more reflection on how they see the world and yeah. what their experiences have been in the world rather than what you wrote in your book. Um, mm. And and I think you're right, Mark. You know, if you if you if you do if you do generate a reaction, that's really good because mm. there's nothing worse than not generating a reaction, which is basically you know a vanilla response where people don't write a review yeah. because they found yeah, it yeah. bland. They didn't take mm. a position. Um, so yeah, I think, I think it's a really good thing. It's very interesting. I also liked how um, Eva talked about like this idea of clean, clean romance, and, and she called it kiss only. <laughs> this is a whole new lexicon that I've never. I've been not being a huge devourer of, of romance books in my own life. I didn't realize that there's a, there's obviously a whole lexicon that that grades romance books because you think I always think romance, and I think oh, it's clean and it's all lovely and. But I mean, romance is a very broad genre now, isn't it? Yes. Well, the um, I mean, she rightly, I think, doesn't like clean because it suggests that sex is somehow dirty. Mm. But uh, but yeah, again, it's that that thing of this kind of romance. There are big reader expectations, and there are some that are going to be read by people who want, as she said, and I love this term, higher heat sensuality. Okay, you want some? Do you want some higher heat sensuality tonight, darling? Oh yes, please. <laughs> or they want something. Right, I'll, I'll turn up the heat blanket. <laughs> yeah, the electric blanket. Yeah, Is that the whole right? bottle. Can I, can I turn up to six? <laughs> Brilliant. Uh, or you know, there are people who just want the the innocence of romance. Who just want they don't want to see what goes on behind the door. They just you know they're happy with the image of the closed door, and then that can stay in that room. But they still want to experience the passion, you know, the romance. Yeah. So yeah. You, I think you have to. It's it's um it's a genre where you have to make that absolutely clear from the beginning because again you can't please everyone with these books. You need to say, okay, this is the track I'm going to take. Uh, there's there's well, that that's route. the thing, right? Yeah, once you cross yeah. a line, mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, it yeah. is. It's a very it's a very interesting one. We talk about you like politically crossing lines, but like in romance books, it's like, yeah. uh, you know, how much do you, you know, are you going for the clean Mills and Boone type delivery or are you going to go for something which is, 
you know, well, right Mills out and, there. Mills and Boone do have that higher heat sensuality, you know. But it's that mm. thing of if you're writing as Eva Lee and you're delivering that heat, and then you, as Eva Lee you write something that's that's there's none of that. Eva Lee fans are going to be what. Where's my yeah. hanky panky? Exactly. Yeah, that's what's that's the big pull for them. It's very interesting as well. I've noticed as well a lot more. Um, I've heard this term "sex positive" come up a lot as well. Yes. And I was really hoping you'd go deep dive into that, Mark. And you just said, "Wonderful," and move straight on. I was like, oh, <laughs> awkward moment. It was brilliant. But no, it's like even um, you know. I think it's it's a it's kind of a healthy a healthy development. I think within within every area, whether it's literacy or you know, um, re- I mean, retail, it's, it's all, it's all shifting and it feels like it's shifting in the book world as well. I think, I mean, I'm sure like me, you grew up listening to people like Kate Bush, uh, and Tori Amos and every now and then they would do a song with where they, it's like, Oh, girls enjoy sex too. You know, yeah, <laughs> it's, yeah. uh, there's always an assumption that that sex is a grotty, dirty thing. But actually, you know, it's a wonderful thing between two consensual adults who love each other. Uh, that is that is, you know, sex positive. And, and uh, you know, and, and, and as long as everyone's, you know, happy and consensual, it's all great. So, um, yeah, I, you know, I uh, this is uh, it was. <sighs> I mean, my nan used to read Mills and Boone. She was Irish Catholic, never discussed anything remotely kind of saucy, never wanted to discuss it. And it all went on behind that door. It was never mm. discussed, you know. Mm. Whereas I grew up reading Claire Rayner's, you know, sex education book, which yeah. I, I actually found on eBay and we bought for our kids as well, where it uh-huh. talks very frankly with lovely cartoons and illustrations about the whole body, the human body, but also sexual reproduction, all of that kind of thing. So we have no hang-ups whatsoever about about this stuff, and we, you know, we talk about it a lot. Um, you know, so again, it depends on what sort of family, what sort of people, what sort of couple, what sort of relationships you are. You, you may not wish to discuss that, and that's fine if you're both signed off on that, although I think it is healthy to discuss these things, mm. whereas we talk about it over dinner, you know. Well, yeah, <laughs> but also but it's interesting within books as well. I think books yeah. can actually be an instigator for those kind of mm. discussions, and they can mm. also play a role in relationships as yeah, well. Yeah, I yeah. mean, yeah. Um, you know, I think – and I also think as well, I always think when, when you talk about people that, that like their kind of – you know, they're clean, they're clean or kiss only romance. Um, you know, I, I, I don't know if they've always just stuck to reading those. I might enjoy those for the, for the, for the stories and, 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 you know, the actual romance that's in there. But, um, I'd be surprised if none of them had any, ever ventured into stuff that was a little bit more high heat, as you like to say, because, well, you know, yeah. you kind of, you know, it's like some people read, some people like to, 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 you know, they enjoy crime, crime dramas or thriller dramas, and there's different levels of intensity. There's got you kind of Breaking mm. Bad, like full on, like some really grotesque moments yeah. in there, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, and then you might just want something a bit more kind of not not more vanilla, but like something a bit less gruesome. Or, and so it's whatever whatever you want in the moment. So it's yeah. it's. But you're right. You have to. I think as an author, you have to kind of decide what that book's going to be. Is it going to? There's almost yeah. like a line that you cross, and once you cross it, then you know, people stay with you, then they want more of that. And if they, if you don't cross it, then you have to kind of stick that side of the line as well. And you need to be consistent. I think once you've made that decision, you can't do a sign of you, you kind of want a better word, clean romance. And then in the middle of it, have this massive bondage session, you know? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So you can't, 
No, that's wrong. You can't do yeah. that. And I think, and I do think there's I'm a lot of, I, I, I'd be interesting to survey a lot of authors who write romance to, as to whether they do have two different pen names because i think oh i think it's very i think common. it's probably very common isn't it yeah, Whereas, yeah and that's so it's not like you can't write write both it's like that you actually have to you know just just have a series and a different name under one so people know what they mm. you know people know what to expect exactly. but yeah. it's interesting but again um i found it fascinating that eva's husband writes romance it's fair, that's a very rare thing isn't it in a relationship where you get i mean rare that both authors write the same genre mm. but also very rare that you get you know the both partners writing romance i don't think i've ever heard that on the podcast before in five years well again it's a it's a positive thing i mean i've i've been to the RNA conference once and I'm hoping to go I'm, I am going again this summer there's like three blokes there <laughs> you know, yeah. there are, it's obviously a genre dominated uh, by by women um, I think uh, I, I mean I, I enjoy going because it's a really really welcoming community they're lovely there we've had some great romance authors on the podcast I've interviewed them at the RNA and it's it's made me think a lot more about the romance in my books as well because I've got this ongoing thing with Faye and Bertie in 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 my novels, and I, I went to, you know, I went to Rhoda Baxter, read my first book, and gave me some brilliant, brilliant feedback on the romance and that. And it's um, it's a genre I find really challenging to write as as well because, you know, when it's done well, it's sublime. When it's done badly, it's really cloying and obvious. And you know, yeah. so I, I'm determined to to make it as as good as possible. But I think that that can. Be, you know, he's also come from the screenwriting world, and as she said, you know, Hollywood chew you up and spit you out again. It's um, you know, yeah. everyone's every screenwriter has their horror stories. Uh, so um, so yeah, I think when you find a community, it's like, yeah, hey, come and write about love, write about the most positive thing in the world. Yeah, there are ups and downs, but in the end, love is all you need, as the poet once said. Well, exactly. And I think there's there's something to be said as well when you, you know, especially during darker times, mm. people often revert to the opposite. They, they want to read, you know, if they're getting reality, um, you know, I've got an interview coming up in a few months where we were talking about like the, how when, when reality, like the war happens in the real world, it suddenly yeah, yeah. makes you stop and think, well, actually, maybe I want something to read something different than that. Yeah. Um, so I think it's really interesting that there's, there's those, you know, uh, that, that, that I think it must be a much more positive experience and a lot better night's sleep when you're writing a romance than when you're writing mm. a kind of a, you know, something really, really terrifying and scary, which is filling your head full of all kinds of interesting thoughts. So yeah. And I'll also be interested, Mark, as well on that note of kind of male romance authors, how many of them of that population that are out there actually write under a female pseudonym because yeah. they're worried about putting like, no one's going to read. Cause we went through this, didn't we? We were writing, a, we wrote uh, back to reality with a female lead. And we did have that kind of dark night, the soul moment. We thought, do we really want to put this book out under two male names? Because are people really going to buy that? Whereas, and I still, I still wonder to this day what would have happened if you could like run parallel parallel worlds. What would have happened if we just put it out under? What were some of the names that we were thinking? Oh there was a, man, don't was, make me go back to that. It was hilarious. <laughs> we got some like combinations of our names as a female author. It was yeah. That we must dig it up because there were some hilarious ones, weren't there? But if the thing I wish we, I wish we could, you could like put, you could put the, a book out 
maybe with a different title, but with a female author and just stick it out, different cover and just see what happens based on the perception of who writes it. Because the thing that we often got in the reviews was, I can't believe two blokes have yeah. managed to write this female lead so well, which was such yeah. an amazing compliment. But it was yeah, almost yeah, like yeah. a surprise of, well, they seem to actually pull it off. Whereas everyone's like, oh, this is going <laughs> to, this is going to be a riot, you know? Um, but it is, it is fascinating, isn't it? Yeah. 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 Maybe we should do that one day. We just, should. Just, I'm sure that the trouble is, I think Amazon now have algorithms that look for piracy, you know, because people, there oh. are naughty people out there who will just copy and paste entire books, put a different title and author on them and, and um, flog them, which is. Well, we should just do a second edition and just update a couple of the chapters just to break <laughs> yeah, the algorithm yeah, yeah, and see yeah, what yeah, happens. Yeah. <laughs> that, that, now, that would be the ultimate experiment because we've talked about. We've, and we've referenced this about in, how incredible it can be just to change the front cover of a book and how that launched Shannon, Shannon Mayer's career. And we've heard it so many times over. A good cover can really can really make a book propel forward. We've never, and I've never heard of someone changing a title and an author name and putting out the same story and seeing if it flies. Oh, I'm oh. tempted. I'm really you know tempted. what? Uh, there's enough distance between the two. I I, uh, I may regret this in the morning, but yeah, it's, it's, uh, maybe we should. Maybe we should toy with it. Let's let's toy with it. <laughs> yeah, let's and talk actually, about that later. And that, well, actually, I'll tell you what, if anyone's ever done that, so that here we go. If anyone's, maybe you could help us here. If anyone's ever actually put out um, like either a female writing a male character and originally put, put themselves out as the female author and then changed to a male name, what happens? And vice versa. We want to hear from you. Let us know what happens. <laughs> who knows brilliant stuff now Mr Stay lots going on in social media I hear lots of book bookshop recommendations there's all kinds of things kicking off we've got all sorts of go just before we go into that a quick Andy update now oh, yes. An Andrew Chapman uh, long term supporter of the podcast and if you've been listening to podcasts for the last few weeks you'll know that we're coming up to the 12th of May which is the date that Andrew Chapman is staying up for 24 hours to write a novel uh, now this was insane enough now just to give you a quick catch up Andy wanted to write a novel in a day stay up 24 hours it's based on a screenplay that he's already written and it's called The Mask Collector and it's an absolutely cracking premise about these guys who do a bank job and it turns into a hostage situation but one of the hostages is a serial killer it's a brilliant premise <laughs> and Andrew's going to spend the 12th of May from you know morning till night 24 hours writing this book Nonstop. Now he's up the ante, Mister D. He's no, up the ante. How can you up an ante of, 50, of a fifty thousand word novel in twenty four hours? Because he's announced the release date. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Right. Okay. So Don't tell done, me it's the next day, is it? No, no, it's not. No. <laughs> you know what he was talking about it, but uh, oh. the BXP group talked him off that particular edge. Uh, it's coming <clears throat> on the thirty first of July. Wow. Okay. So that's a major and turnaround. It's already up for pre-order. So we're going to put the link in the show notes uh, and you can check. But if you look on Amazon, The Mask Collector, Andrew Chapman, it's already there. It's weirdly, it's already hit the top 50 in horror fiction classics in the Kindle store in the UK. So <laughs> <laughs> it's like, I've I've not written it, but it's already, you know, in the top 50 in the charts. Um, I'm going to put a link to a video as well where he explains this and he has a clip of us talking about what it's all about. So uh, oh, folks, love it. Uh, there's going to be a link in the show notes so you can pre-order it. Look for the hashtag novel in a day and the hashtag the mask collector on the 12th of May and give Andy all your support on the way. It's going to be amazing. I'm looking forward to this. Absolutely brilliant. Well, all 
all the best, Andrew, because I know once we finish recording this, I do believe um, the next episode will be coming out um, after mm. after Andrew's done it. So, so listen out, folks. We'll give you an update on how everything went. Fantastic. Brilliant. brilliant. So, yes, social media. So, uh, yes, on the BXP team, Jack Levers uh, got in touch. He's published a book. His, his book, Don't Play Dead with the Vultures, is a big-ass action thriller that I chose not to substantially cut down following feedback from a big publisher. I'll hit them with the next one. Uh, I had a pretty chaotic book launch run on Friday night. Now, so what he's done, Jack, so obviously, you know, he's put this out there. No publisher's picked it up, so he's, he's, he's published it himself. And it looks great. Don't Play Dead with Vultures, cracking stuff. And the uh, shout line is, if you got to go. Go hard, which I love. But what he's done to public, and this has already happened, this is on the 29th of April, he's gone on a pub crawl with a handful of paperback. And so if you were to go up to Jack and say the word vultures, he would give you a free copy. (laughs) What a genius idea. What an absolutely genius idea. So congratulations on on that, Jack. And, um, yeah, and folks, check out Don't Play Dead With Vultures if that's your thing. Um, Tiny Scott on the BXP group as well. She's just uh, released a new book as well. Uh, It's called The Case of the Criminal Cruise, and it's a Rennie Brienne mystery. It's the second one in the series. It's a 1920s Agatha Christie-style mystery. Uh, So, and, um, yeah, fantastic. Uh, Tanya, huge, huge congrats on that. The, The BXP team just you know pumping books out there left right and center it's just fantastic that's absolutely brilliant absolutely brilliant Tanya and I think this is this is also the post-covid effect isn't it Mark of everyone who's been kind of tucked away writing and now we're seeing a a great great flow of books coming out it's amazing and we're getting more and more recommendations for bookshops we love hearing about your favorite bookshops do do not stop sending them and we love to hear about them wendy koth said uh what about all good bookshop in wood green they run events author talks and it's a comedy club and that's a that's a mix i've never had but i heard before sounds like my dream dreamy day out and evening out (laughs) it's brilliant isn't it you could you could stay there all day day, have an event have some comedy brilliant Brilliant. so so thanks for that wendy uh we'll put a link to the all good bookshop in the uh show notes you can check that out Liss uh, in the BXP team and in the academy uh, raves about window seat books uh, two of the coolest staff members who truly nerd out about books Andre the owner she created some excellent programs during the first year of the pandemic to make sure folks could safely access books and branch out their reading as we all hunkered down and twiddled thumbs so yeah window seat books check them out thank you so much for the recommendation Liss uh, and Elizabeth Hurley Elizabeth Hurley said I'm a big fan of this place hurley books in mevagissi hmm uh (laughs) elizabeth hurley runs hurley books in mevagissi and it is a beautiful i follow their instagram account and it's absolutely brilliant it looks just fantastic uh elizabeth is also a fantastic author as well so do check her out um so yes uh we'll put a link to hurley books in there as well do check those out keep them coming folks we love hearing about your favorite bookshops uh come and drop us a line on social media we uh on Facebook, we're Bestseller Experiment. Twitter and Instagram, we're at BestsellerXP. Or if you want to email us, go to bestsellerexperiment.com and you'll see a contact tab there. Brilliant stuff. And if your bookstore, your bookshop is featured on the Bestseller Experiment, you are allowed to put a poster in your window, the biggest you like, as featured <laughs> on the Bestseller Experiment and the new URL, and then take a photo of it, send it to us. And, uh, yeah, and we'll up. put that on the show notes as well. So absolutely brilliant. Well, listen, Mark, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting with as you always. again this week. I loved, good luck with the, uh, the, all of the beginnings of the, 
the publication process now for mm. um, the new book, book three in the Woodville series, The Ghost of Ivy Barn. Can't wait to see that when it's uh, out. And um, to everyone out there in writing land, we wish you a very productive um, and an excitingly challenging week writing. And uh, if you if you don't, you know, if you like this podcast, tell your friends, pop over to the website as well, join our newsletter. Uh, you can get to that by bestsellerexperiment.com. Click on the newsletter tab and you will get an email every week outlining all the great things that are coming up in the uh, in, in the most recent episode as well, things that you'll learn about. So, Mr. Stay, have a great week and I look forward to chatting with you again next week and to everyone out there. Lovely. Have a fantastic time. And it's a goodbye from Mark 1. And a goodbye from Mark 2. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.